Didn't you have your phone on you? Yeah. Pull up, put up a Facebook, go to the Redeemer Facebook page and see if this thing is streaming.
roots, I guess you would say. Uh, so this first song that we're going to sing is called Grace Alone. confession. This invites us to speak words that are remarkably honest about our sin. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you this morning, Lord. Lord, we're asking you that you would bring to our hearts and minds the sins in our lives, sins that we have committed this week, sins that have been 
things that we've struggled with throughout our Christian life, Lord. Lord, we confess these to you. We confess times of frustration, of being impatient, Lord. Frustrations with you as well. Frustrated with changes in our lives, changes at jobs, changes within, within relationships, Lord. Just frustrated. Where we confess sins of pride as well. Thinking ourselves better or thinking ourselves that we have to compare ourselves with others to prove our worth. Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would forgive us. Lord, your word tells us to confess sin. And your word says, Lord, that you will forgive us of those sins when we confess them, Lord. So we ask for humility, Lord. We ask for, for the hearts of confession. And Lord, may we pour out our sins to you with the knowledge, Lord, know that you will forgive us. That we, with the knowledge, Lord, that you have sent your son into the world, Lord, that he died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. And that we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. Take this time to confess sin. We thank you, Lord, for forgiving us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Maybe seated. We're now going to do our declaration of pardon, which is a spiritual promise of salvation in Christ. From Romans 5, 8 through 9. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Let's pray. So, Lord, we are so thankful, Lord, that we can say that, that we have been saved by your wrath. As we'll be talking about today, Lord, about judgment and, the, and what, what, what is the consequence or the result of Christ's death on the cross. That there is division, and even in the household. Some have been saved, Lord, that your wrath has been poured out on Christ on the cross, but others have rejected Christ. And that judgment is still upon them. Lord, for those who have never accepted Christ, who have never put their faith in Christ, who can't say with assurance that they are pardoned, Lord, I pray that your grace be poured out on them. In Jesus' name, amen.
go ahead and be seated. Um, so, uh, welcome back. First of all, uh, I want to just say, gosh darn, it is so good to be back with everyone today. I love, love being here with you all, worshiping together. This is so wonderful for me. Um, I miss this. And I think it's right that, that we as fellow believers, as we as the body of Christ should feel it when we're not together. We should feel the longing, the desire to be together. And man, I have felt that. And so it is such a joy and a privilege to be back here with you all again. Um, we, we still are going to do our offertory, uh, our offering moment. Uh, we're not going to send the kids out, so we're not going to have uh, that. But we are still going to take up an offering. Um, but I think we're not going to pass a plate. I'm correcting that, right? Yeah, we're not going to pass a plate today. Uh, but we are still going to, going to include it in our liturgy, remind us of the reason that we give um, as we take this moment. Uh, there are multiple ways to give here at Redeemer Fellowship Church. You can give uh, by going online to evansvillechurch.com giving. You can give through the link there. Uh, you can also give via text message by texting the number on the screen. If you text Evansville to that number, suit you back a link. You can give that way. You can also give through the Redeemer Fellowship app. If you haven't downloaded that, you can download that app. Uh, we would encourage you to download that. Uh, and then you can give through the app that way. Uh, so before we give, we have an offertory prayer that we're going to read. And our screen up here is not working, so I am going to go back to the old school way of uh, turning around and, and reading off the screen. But uh, our offertory prayer for this week this is a reminder of why we give, uh, an encouragement for us to worship in this way. Dear God, wherever we look, from next door to a world away, we see the places where your creation groans. May these gifts be a faithful response to those cries. Amen. Let me pray for us real quick. Lord, we pray for this time of giving. Lord, I pray that as we, uh, Lord, offer up to you in worship our tithes and our offerings, Lord, that you would use them for the exact purpose that we have just stated, Lord, to, to reach out to a world that is groaning, longing uh, for you, longing for your return for a day when, when things will be set right. Lord, I pray that, that our tithes and offerings, as we give those, would go to serve that purpose, would go out to serve a world that is groaning, longing for your return. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. you're quick with your fingers and you got that done because uh, we are going to move right along um, into our text for today. Uh, Matt, are you going to hit those points for me? Great. All right. So our text for today comes from Luke chapter 12 verses 49 through 53. Luke chapter 12. As we have been making our way through the gospel of Luke, we come today uh, to this to this section of scripture, which um, Honestly, I think we're, we're in a sense kind of coming back with a bang as we, uh, as we read this portion of scripture. We'll see, honestly, just some really um, intense words from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ uh, as he teaches his disciples and, and the Jews that are there. So it's important for us as, as, we, um, as, a, as the church, uh, my concern for us as a congregation, my desire for our congregation is that we would have a, a complete and an accurate picture of who 
Jesus is. Not just a proof text Jesus that we have created based on select scriptures of what we think should be said about Jesus, but I want us to have a full view of who Jesus is, what it is that he came down to this earth to accomplish. There are many people who call themselves Christians, and honestly, there's even whole denominations who have failed to embrace a full, a complete view of who Christ is, and they've done this to their detriment. They've left out parts of what is described about Jesus in God's word. They've just left out parts of who Jesus is because it doesn't fit into their mental schema of who they think Jesus is or how they would describe Jesus. Jesus Christ. And we see examples of this on both ends of the spectrum. There are people, there are congregations, there are groups of, of people who call themselves followers of Christ who, who only pick and choose the, the pictures of Christ, the ideas of Christ that, that see him as loving, as caring, as feeding the hungry, as caring for the poor, as kind, as generous. All of these kind of feel-good uh, portions of Jesus, right? These, these ideas about Jesus that, honestly, no one has any problem with. No one is going to argue with these ideas of Jesus, uh, that he was kind and, and generous and loving. And he was all of those things. And that, those are correct, but that is only a, a fraction of the picture. But then you have on the other end of the spectrum, right, people who only see Jesus for the wrathful words that he says, for when he condemns the Pharisees, when he, uh, when he rebukes his disciples, when he speaks of coming destruction and, and the, the abomination that is to come. And, and they take that view of Jesus uh, and end up in a place where they uh, live their lives, they live their lives in the world, and even as a church, just in a place of harshness, anger, aggression towards those around them, towards the world, uh, and even in the way many times they handle their own church members. And, and we can see, just looking around at, at different congregations, different denominations, different people who call themselves believers, and the way in which a, a partial view of Jesus leads to, to a bad place. It can lead to the abandoning of, of truth, of doctrine, of uh, the importance, the reality of, of sin and hell. It can also lead to the abandonment of grace and mercy and uh, brotherly love that we are called to have for one another. We, we see the need, as we, as we just think through these things in our head, the need for us to have a full view of Christ, one that pictures him correctly as he is. And that's why we need to, to preach. We need to read sections of Scripture like what we're going to read today because the passage that we're looking at today, in this section of Scripture, we see a description of Jesus that honestly some people find, most people probably find to be a little bit unpleasant, a little bit abrasive in the way Jesus uh, talks of himself. So without further ado, Luke chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 49 and go down through verse 53. The word of God says this, I came to cast fire on earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to, to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, 
mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Let's pray. God, I pray for the reading, the preaching of your word this morning as it goes forth, Lord, that it would be faithful, that your word would do what it is in the business of doing, which is convicting of sin, empowering us, encouraging us, speaking to our hearts, and Lord, sanctifying your church and calling out corruption and sin. And I pray that that would take place here today by the grace of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So as we, as we start this section off, the very first portion, uh, the point number one of my sermon is fire and wrath. And, and this is, this is I, I titled this section Fire and Wrath because honestly, that's what we see in these first two verses of our text. We see fire and we see wrath in verses 49 and 50. Here in this section of scripture, we see Jesus himself telling us explicitly about his purposes and coming down to earth. And honestly, it's not what most of us would have expected him to say. It's not what we would expect Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the, the, uh, the one who has come to save us from our sins, not what we would expect to come out of his mouth. Jesus starts his exhortation in this passage with this phrase. He says, I have come. This is an important phrase. This is a, a phrase that's used throughout the New Testament, throughout the life of Jesus, to describe what it is that he has come down to earth to accomplish. It's used repeatedly to give us insight into why Jesus came down to earth. And it does in multiple places. In John chapter 6, verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In Luke chapter 5, verse 32, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he says, do, or, uh, Excuse me, in Luke, I got those mixed up. That was Matthew 5, 17. Luke chapter 5, verse 32 says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We see this phrase, I have come used over and over again to describe what it is that Jesus has come down to earth to do, what his mission is, what it is that he will accomplish. And we hear it from his own words. And in the case of our text today, what we see following this phrase, I have come, we see this to be a bit more bleak than what we see in some other sections of scripture. We see Jesus says that he has come to cast fire on the earth. The fire that Jesus is referring to here, it could be used to refer to, to judgment. And we recognize that there is a judgment that comes upon all those who reject Christ, who reject his word, who reject him uh, and his death on the cross. We, we recognize the, the truth of that, that, in, that there is a fact that judgment will come upon all who reject Christ. But fire here could also be reused to, used to refer to uh, a type of purifying or refining fire, a a refining process. We often think when we hear about fire, we think of fire in terms of it being destructive or or bad, but fire can also be a very good thing, a very cleansing and and proper, healthy thing. For a lot of you in here that, that know me well, you know that like for the past month, I have thoroughly enjoyed going out into the woods and hunting mushrooms. 
Uh, morel mushrooms are very delicious and they grow pretty good around here, but you can only get them at a certain time. You have to go out and hunt them up. Uh, and I have spent, as Kaylee can attest, many hours out in the woods uh, over the past month hunting up these mushrooms. Uh, and what, what, is, what is funny though is that mushrooms, along with lots of other plants, actually after there has been a forest fire or, or even like a controlled burn that has come through that area of woods, mushrooms tend to grow way better after that. It, it produces like a cleansing, a, 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 and something in the soil that for mushrooms and for certain other plants causes them to grow better. In fact, the government and, and certain agencies actually go into woods and do controlled burns sometimes where they literally, they will start a fire and allow it to burn a certain area of woods or of grassland uh, and control it and allow it to burn that area because it is healthy. It's healthy for uh, the ecology in that area. It also helps to reduce the risk of later wildfires that can be uncontrolled and far more destructive. Uh, but, but what I want us to think about is this idea that it is actually a, a good and cleansing thing to, to experience these refining fires, these controlled burns. In fact, the sequoia tree, one of the biggest trees uh, in the world, and is, it's massive, these huge giant trees that we see uh, out in California and places like that, actually those seeds won't grow unless there's been a fire. Unless that has come through, uh, the, the seed won't, I don't know the process because I'm not a scientist, but according to the internet, the seed won't grow until that has taken place. It's fascinating. And the reality of it is that, uh, that in much the same way, the fire that Christ is talking about for his church is a purifying and refining fire. This fire does the work of purifying the church, most likely in the form of persecution. We know that a persecuted church is a refined church, is a cleansed church, is a, honestly, a growing and healthy church most of the time. Most of the time, churches are most healthy, most growing, most thriving whenever they are under persecution. And we, we see this, and there's this, there's this uh, Christian cartoonist named Adam 4D who, who did this great cartoon. I was going to try and show it, but it ended up being really small. But it's like a comic strip where he illustrates this, this point. He, he puts up a comic of Christianity 20 years ago. And you have the, the Christian, the believer, and then the non-believer. And over here by the believer is this guy that on his shirt it just says, meh. And he sided with the Christian. And basically he says, I'm with the Christian because it's socially advantageous for me to be here. And then it says Christianity Today. And the meh guy has moved over, and he's now next to the non-believer. And he says, it's socially advantageous for me to side with this guy, so I'm over here now. And then it says what the, what the media says. And the media says, oh, look, the church is declining. The church is shrinking. It's, it's dying out. It's getting smaller. But then the next section is, is that believer representing the church saying, uh, no, actually... Uh, he never was actually Christian. It's just not socially advantageous for him to identify as one now. And so he's over there. But the church hasn't actually shrunk. And then the, the next thing that comes out of his mouth is, and actually, I feel healthier now that he's gone. Which is kind of funny, right? We, we recognize this. We know that, that the church is not declining. God has promises in his word that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. That God's church will continue to grow, will continue to work in this world. And the refining fire of persecution 
serves this purpose, this purpose to refine the church, to purify the church, that we recognize whenever it is less advantageous for people to call themselves Christians, they abandon it pretty quick, right? We recognize that that is, the, that is not them leaving the faith or going from Christian to non-Christian. That is people who never were Christians that are just no longer hanging out with Christians. So, so we recognize that this fire, this purifying fire is good. It's, it's healthy. Even persecution, though we don't desire it, we don't look forward to it, is, is healthy for the church. And while there is a fire facing the world, we see also in our text in verse 50 that there is a baptism that Jesus knows he will experience that will be far more intense than the fire that we face. Look here in verse 50. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. This baptism that Jesus is talking about is not the way we think of baptism as water baptism being, being immersed or or if you're uh, Presbyterian or, or Lutheran being sprinkled, he's not talking about that, but rather what Jesus is referring to in his baptism here is it is the wrath of God that will be poured out upon him. Jesus recognizes that he will be immersed into the full judgment of God for sin. This is why, uh, this is why that the fire mentioned previously is refining for us. Because we recognize that the baptism that Jesus waited for so anxiously, even up to the point in the Garden of Gethsemane where he bled as he, as he sweated drops of blood, this was the, the culmination of, honestly, what he saw coming his entire life. He knew the cross was coming from the beginning. This was not a surprise to him at the Garden of Gethsemane. But even in this passage, we see he knows what is coming and he, he knows the wrath of God is going to be poured out upon him. But this baptism that Jesus waited for so anciently has in fact become our path to peace. Which brings us to point number two. We see in verse 51, honestly, just a, a, a saying that sets Jesus apart from all other religious leaders. Leaders like Gandhi and others who he is so often compared to. What does Jesus say in verse 51? This is shocking to us. He says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. What a wild statement Jesus has just made. These 19 words in this verse are quite shocking, and, and they force us to wrestle with the question, how is it that Christ is the Prince of Peace, as he's described in Isaiah chapter 6, and yet he says this about himself. How do these two things reconcile? How can they both, both be true? That Jesus is both the Prince of Peace, but also he is saying here, I have not come to bring peace on earth. This ought to cause us to stop and, and rack our brains and, and ask, how can this be true? And I want, us to, I want us to address this question here today. I want us to address the question of, does Christ bring peace or not? Because the answer to this question, as we look, the answer is twofold. In one sense, to, to the question, does Christ bring peace? In one sense, the answer is yes. Yes, Christ does bring peace. He is the Prince of Peace. For those who through faith 
turn from their sin, trust in Christ for forgiveness, they will have peace with God. That's what uh, Paul assures us in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, right? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a, a very real and true reality that for us as believers, we now have peace with God. Christ brings this peace between believers and God. We also know, even beyond that, that in Christ there is peace between believers. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So we recognize, we see that in that sense as well, Christ has brought peace to his church, to believers. And what was especially wild to, to the congregation he was writing to at the time was that he has brought peace even between Jew and Gentile. These two people who were, who were so at odds for all of history, so contradictory to each other, he says, I have brought peace even between Jew and Gentile, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. The gospel now applied to all of us brings unity, unity among believers. So in both of those senses, the answer is yes, Christ has brought peace. But the answer to whether or not Christ has brought peace on earth is also no. As he clearly states in our passage, he says it himself, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No. The answer in this passage is no, I have not come to bring peace on earth. Contrary to what the Jews expected, the Messiah did not come as a political powerhouse who would bring stability, prosperity by political means. In fact, Jesus knew full well that his life and his death would be the most divisive event in history. And it remains that way to this day. This is the most divisive event that has ever happened in the history of the world. And Jesus knows this. He knows that this is the fact. The fact of the matter is that the cross of Christ is so offensive to a lost and dying world. It's offensive. It's angering. It's divisive. The cross confronts our sinfulness and our pride. And it demonstrates for us the blood payment that was required because of our wickedness, because of who we are in Adam, all of us. And no one wants to hear this message. No one wants to hear that they are wicked, that they are sinful, that because of their wickedness, their sinfulness, their pride, Christ's blood had to be shed. No one wants to hear that. No one wants to hear that they deserve God's wrath. And therefore, they find the cross repulsive. They find it offensive. And the fact of the matter is, if a person has, has some sense of peace in their heart, it can only be, be because they have not seen the true cross. If a lost person has some sense of peace in their heart, it's only, it can only be because they have not seen the truth of the cross. 
Because you cannot accept the reality of the cross, of Christ's crucifixion, of the gospel, and still be content in your sin. You cannot. There will be no peace for you when the cross has confronted your sin. You are forced to pick sides. You cannot stay in that place of the cross is true, the reality that I am a sinner and wretched and deserve God's wrath is true, yet I am going to stay in my sin. That, ca that category does not exist. And therefore, the cross is divisive. It brings hostility. Because of this, there's not only hostility between the world and God, but there's hostility between believers and unbelievers. And this should come as no surprise to us. We are called to be messengers of the gospel. People who are, who are living out and heralding the good news of the gospel. We are called to confront people with the cross. So it should come as no surprise to us that there is hostility between us as believers and those whose sin the cross confronts. It's inevitable. Christ came to bring division, as we see in this text. But he gets even sharper, even more intense, even deeper than just stating that. But he says that this division is not just between large groups of people, not just between uh, the, the Romans and the Christians, but that this division, as Jesus explains here, even comes down to the family level. That even within families, there is division, which brings us to point number three, brother against brother in verses 52 through 53. This is what Jesus says will happen, that even family members will be turned against one another in 52 and 53. Let's see what he says. In 52, he says, from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This idea of family members being at odds with one another, being hostile towards one another, it, it reminds me, even the language he uses reminds me of, of the way that we, we talk about the Civil War, right? The, the Civil War, one of the most tragic moments in American history, when, when Americans fought against Americans, even down to the point where brother had to go to war and fight against his brother. And we, we think about the reality of that, and it is tragic. Family members fighting against family members, shooting, killing, charging against one another. It's so, honestly, it's just a sad reality, a sad place to think what it must have been like to live in those times, to, to be called to war against your, your kinsmen and your, your own family. And yet, in a sense, this is the reality in which many Christians live today. This is the sad reality we face, that the gospel is so divisive that even within households, there will, there will be some who believe and others who reject the cross, and there will be strife between them. There will be hostility. In fact, Matthew uh, goes even farther in Matthew chapter 10, verses 36 through 37. This is over the same uh, uh, event, same text that Jesus is saying, but Matthew goes a bit farther. He says this in chapter 10, verse 36 and 37. And a person's 
enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew goes on to say that not only will they be against each other, they will be enemies. Christ is warning us here in in Matthew and here in our text in Luke. He is warning us of what is coming for us. But he's also challenging us to forsake even family relationships for the sake of the gospel. He's calling us to choose Christ over them. To choose our love for Christ over our love for our family. To put our relationship with him above all else. Forsaking even our very own family relationships. And here's the thing. If we were to go around and pull every Christian in Evansville, every person who claims to be a Christian in Evansville, I would say if we go to all of them and ask them, do you love Christ more than your family? I would argue almost all, if not all of them, would say, yes, I value Christ more than anything. I love him more than my family, more than anything else. And yet when the rubber hits the road, we tend to see something different, right? We tend to see Christ taking second fiddle to the family. When their lost family members demonstrate unbelief, So often they keep silent, choosing not to stir the pot or to offend. When their son or daughter has a sporting event or a practice on Sundays, they commit to that instead of corporate worship. When a boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance wants to go ahead and sleep together, they just go ahead and do it so as not to risk losing that relationship. We see over and over again, and many of us, if we, if we really think hard, are guilty of some of these very same things, of putting even family relationships over Christ. Over and over again, we're guilty of this. And I don't have to tell some of you in here, you know, you know that commitment to Christ means that you will struggle with some of your closest family members, some of your closest relationships. You know that it means it's going to cost you. You feel that. You feel the weight of that. For many around the world, this is true. There is hardly a Muslim who, when coming to Christ, does not face rejection from their family, at least to some extent, usually severe. To accept Christ in a Muslim world, in a Muslim family, means that you will be rejected by your family means that you'll likely be disowned, cast out, rejected. And this is what Christ is warning us for. This is what he is telling us will come. We don't have to be surprised when there's hostility, even down to family members. But here's the thing. And this is what every person who has come to Christ out of a Muslim family, out of any other religion that that is, is hard to come out of, that they face rejection from their family for coming out of it. And they would attest to this, that the cost is worth the reward. It's worth it. The reward is far greater. It is far greater to have Christ than to lose your soul. We recognize this. We know this. Yet it's so hard so often for, for us to get this through.
through our skull, right? But we know this is true. We know, as our text is telling us here, that family will be turned against family. That for us to accept Christ, to accept the gospel, to believe on the cross is going to cost us relationships. And we have to ask ourselves, are we ready to face that? Are we ready to face the loss of friendships at work? Are we ready to face the loss of, of boyfriends, girlfriends, uh, love relationships? Are we ready to face even the loss, the forsaking of family relationships for the sake of the cross? I have just a couple application points as we close. First of all, what we have seen exhibited here, what Christ has, has told us is that the gospel is offensive. We know this. The gospel is offensive just because of the nature of what it does to the human heart. So we don't need to be offensive. This passage, as we read about brother being turned against brother, uh, husband against wife, mother against daughter, this is not a free pass for us to go out and be a jerk for Christ, to try and bring on suffering and, and hurt relationships for the sake of Christ. This is not our goal. When we go out to preach the gospel to the world, we do so in gentleness and love, out of a kindness, out of a recognition of that we were the same as they were before Christ. Too many people think that it is now their mission to try and just agitate people as much as they can and to be as aggressive as possible as they can with the gospel, saying, well, yeah, supposed to offend people. The gospel is offensive enough on its own. Let it do the work of offending people. Don't add to it. We are called to show grace, humility, kindness, the fruit of the Spirit. That should be all coming through as we are sharing the gospel, as we are living out what it means to follow Christ. All of those should be true in our life. Let the gospel offend on its own. Don't add to it. Second, is that we do lose earthly, biological relationships here on earth because of the cross. We do. To follow Christ is to forsake relationships. And for some of us, that is way harder than others. I, I am, am very blessed by the Lord to have grown up in a family where my family are Christians. I do not have to confront my mom on the gospel and her lack of understanding the gospel or or of this or that. Now, we still sin. My family still sins. And we, we seek to correct one another in gentleness and love. But for many people, this is not the case. They live in families that reject the gospel and therefore are hostile towards them. And here's the thing. What we lose in the way of biological relationships here on earth, we gain in the way of a spiritual family. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not left on an island when we are rejected by our family, when we lose those earthly relationships, when there's hostility between brother and brother, son and daughter, mother and daughter, mother and son. We, do not, we are not left alone in those cases. God has given us a church family, unity in Christ, as we saw in Ephesians, to build one another up, to care for one another, to nurture each other. Jesus makes this point in Luke chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, when he's told that his mother and his brothers are looking for him. What does Jesus say? How does he respond? He says, my mother and my brothers 
are those who hear the word of God and do it. Brother and sister, if you're hearing this today and you are feeling right now the weight of fear of what it would mean to actually to, like, share the gospel with your family, if you recognize the reality of loss of relationships, like, that's scary. But trust me when I say that you have a heavenly father and brothers and sisters in Christ that God has given you to love you, to care for you, to be with you, to walk with you here on this earth. Mm -hmm. Don't forsake that. Don't forget that. Mm -hmm. Don't push that to the side as secondary, but rather recognize that. Nurture those relationships. Love on those people. Enjoy those people, those relationships. Mm -hmm. God cares for us as his children, and he has not left us alone. He has given us a family to love us, to care for us, to be with us. And that's something worth celebrating. And that's why I'm so thankful to be back here again with my church family. It has been so hard to be just completely separated. And I know we've got a long road ahead of us. I know we're not back to normal. But, but brothers and sisters, enjoy this moment. Enjoy this time that we have to be with each other, to worship, to ask one another, how are you doing? To genuinely be together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Why don't you bow your heads with me? Lord God, thank you so much that we have hope in Christ Jesus. Lord, we, we are so thankful that even as we look to, to the fire of persecution that is coming, Lord, we know that, that for us that fire is, is refining, it's hard, it's, it's painful, but Lord, it is far worse for those who have rejected you. The fire of judgment. Lord, we pray for those, Lord, who we know in our own families who are living under your judgment and under your wrath right now. That they have not been baptized into the baptism that Christ experienced. They have not uh, had Christ take the wrath of God for them, but they are still under his wrath right now. Lord, may our attitude toward them not be one of aggression, not be one of pride, not be one of, of being stuck up or arrogant, but Lord, may we tenderly, lovingly preach the gospel to them. And Lord, where there is hostility that you have guaranteed there will be, Lord, I pray that you would bring peace, that you would bring comfort, that you would be with your children. Lord, you truly are the great divider. There is no middle ground. There is nowhere in this text or in, in all of Scripture a category for someone who halfway believes. Who maybe doesn't believe that you are the Son of God, but is, is chill with Christianity and therefore okay in God's eyes. Lord, there is no such category. I pray that as we see that you are the great divider, Lord, that it would cause us to ask ourselves, where are we? Have we forsaken even family relationships for you? Is there a portion of our life that we are holding on to out of fear, out of anxiety? Lord, may we turn that over to you and trust in you for your provision, for your care, for your kindness as a good and loving father. Lord, I pray as we go forward from this place that you would, first of all, Lord, bring us back next week. Lord, we so love to be together and, Lord, to worship as a family. 
Lord, bring us back next week. We pray it for as we move forward over the next few months, Lord, for your grace, Lord, for your mercy, Lord, for, you, for your wisdom as we, as we seek to understand what are the proper steps, how to properly, uh, Lord, handle ourselves in a way that is wise, but also in a way that is faithful to your word. And Lord, we're going to make mistakes, and we know that, but we trust in you to give us grace and mercy in those times. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this has to be the shortest service we've ever done here. Um, but uh, we're going to do our benediction. If you would uh, stand with me uh, as we uh, give a word of encouragement on the road. And um, I want to say this before we leave. Um, we're going to probably be under these parameters for as long as the state tells us to. Um, our plan is hopefully to do uh, the Lord's Supper communion starting in the month of June. God willing, we can do that. Uh, but also, um, we are hopefully this week are going to give out a schedule of what the summer is going to look like here, uh, what growth groups we're going to have, uh, what other events we're going to have throughout the summer. Uh, so we'll hopefully we'll have that for you this week and get that out to you. So if you're wondering what the summer is going to look like here at Redeemer, we're hoping to answer that question very soon. So um, we're going to do our benediction here, and um, this comes from... Uh, 1 Timothy 1, 2. And again, as Ditton was saying, let me ask, so echo, thank you for being with us. Uh, it's good to see everyone. It's good to see your faces, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Um, now may grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord be with you always. Go now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Peace be with you. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.